Turn your Bibles, please, with me to Exodus. And uh, we've been working our way through Exodus and we come to chapter 21. We'll take a pause next week and look at the book of Esther. But we're in Exodus 21. Let's pray before we read the first 11 verses together. There are church Bibles at the back, and uh, we're turning your Bibles to Exodus 21, and I'll pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, your word says you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. We pray that we might decrease this morning, Christ might increase. I pray that you would give me a humble heart as I preach. Holy Spirit, give me the words to speak well of our Saviour, our Lord Jesus Christ. And give your people a teachable spirit as they listen. I pray that you'd shape us, transform us, rebuke us, refine us, change us, according to your words. In the name of our Saviour. Amen. Exodus 21 is a chapter maybe very few of us have in our hearts or our heads. Maybe it's a passage that very few of us have ever studied. And if we're honest, it's a passage that seems rather strange. But let's read it together. Exodus 21 verses 1 to 11. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God. And he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he will be his slave forever. And when a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated for her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. He takes another wife to himself. He shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. This is the holy and inerrant word of God. And that may be the only inerrant bit that you hear the whole service. But that is the word of God. And there's a start, as a start, as Moses comes down the mountain, as we move from the Ten Commandments, where we were last week, even with the smoke and the theopony and the thunder and the noise, from the grandeur of the Ten Commandments and then the shock and awe and the fear and trembling, now we have a law about slavery. And then next week, or it would have been next week, you know, we had the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. So it's a section of our Bible we may even skim over. And if we're honest, the section of the Bible we may not like very much. Because part of the problem is, when we read this, when we hear it, we think of our modern day understanding of slavery. So it's probably right to put that, if you like, you know, to, to, to dispose of that right up front. You can't read back modern views of slavery into the Bible. It was written millennia 
millennia before any, you know, any of our modern understanding of slavery came to be. Slavery has been a constant throughout human history. We know of the cruelties, we know well of the cruelties of the transatlantic slave trade of the 16th, 17th, 18th and 19th centuries. We don't know so much about other examples, that's what we initially think of. A million Europeans were enslaved by North African pirates from 1500 to 1800. In the Middle Ages, Slavs were so widely used in the Islamic world that that's the namesake for the word slave. And slavery existed among Asians and Polynesians in China and India, in Africa and in the Western Hemisphere before the Europeans arrived. For most of history, people enslaved people like them because travel was difficult and people around you were people like you. So in history, Asians enslaved Asians, Africans enslaved Africans, Europeans enslaved Europeans. At times, Christians were enslaved by the stronger Muslim nations, but by and large, until colonisation, slavery did not take on a racial hue. It was only, um, it was before that, Africans enslaved Africans, Europeans Europeans, Asians Asians, it wasn't a racial thing. But it was in the modern era, when the white Europeans and then their settlers in the Americas enslaved black people in large numbers. So in many ways, racism is a result of slavery. It's not the cause of slavery, it is the result of slavery. Now people throughout history have always, as part of the sinful fallen condition, we look down on people who talk differently to us. You know, I sometimes wonder how I exist, even, you know, even in Cumbria, talking like you know, someone from down south. I, I, sometimes, I said last night, I sometimes need a, a translator to go around Cumbria, let alone to the south of America, for example. But you know, we have always tended to look down on people who don't look like us, who don't sound like us. It's what we do as sinful humans. But the transatlantic slave trade, as it existed in those three or four centuries, was not first of all based on racial animus, but the racial bias came as a result of the sinful slavery. And by the beginning of the American colonies, the transatlantic slave trade was actually, horribly so, the vital link that connected Europe, Africa and North and South America. And during the 16th to 19th century, 11 million Africans were taken from Africa to the Americas. They were enslaved and sold by other Africans. Many times the Africans were working for European firms. And many times they were entrepreneurial themselves. And what is probably not known so much is that the most common place of disembarkment was Brazil. And of the 11 million slaves that went from Africa to the Americas, 4.8 million went to Brazil. And it's only the fifth most common place for slavery was North America. But I give that history so that we don't read that history back into Israel's history. We, you know, we cannot just sit here and say, you know, no, we cannot do that. We cannot take our sinful history as a world and read it back into what the Bible says. Because when we read a word like slave in the Bible, 
we automatically switch to the transatlantic slave trade. But what we have in the Bible is millennia before any of that would happen. And slavery in the ancient world, in the biblical world, referred to a variety of economic relationships. It's, it referred to a variety of relationships. In fact, the Hebrew word in Exodus 21 is the word ebed. You may have heard of that. The Hebrew word is ebed. And it can refer to slaves, servants or employees. So you see the range of what the word says. When it says slave in our English version, it's actually ebed, which could mean slave, servant or employee. If you have an ESV Bible, and you look when you go home, and most ESV Bibles have a preface at the beginning. You know, which is, you know, they have a preface at the beginning, and I'll read, I'll just read from that preface. A, political, a particular difficulty is presented when words in Biblical Hebrew and Greek refer to ancient practices and institutions that do not correspond directly to the modern world. Such is the case with ebed in Hebrew and doulos in Greek which words that terms that are rendered slave. These terms in the Bible cover a range of relationships that require a range of renderings, slave, bond, servant, or servant. So translators, they say up front, they have a difficulty with these words, ebed and doulos. And there's a corresponding word for master in Hebrew, which is baal, which can also mean master, boss, lord, employer, or owner. So again, there are a range of meanings in the original language. Because I think it's important to talk about that. About that. Now many people would say that the Old Testament is, is evil because the Old Testament does not condemn slavery. The Old Testament does not condemn slavery, but it doesn't condone slavery, it constrains slavery. Much like it does with polygamy. The Bible just never says polygamy is a good idea. There's not a verse that says husbands have as many wives as you want. But we see from the beginning of Genesis that there's one man and one woman, but polygamy was common. So the Old Testament didn't condemn it, it doesn't condone, but it doesn't condone it, certainly, but it constrains it. It constrains it. So you could argue, given the realities and the laws of the surrounding cultures, the Mosaic law, the Mosaic law made slavery more humane and at the same time made slavery less desirable for the owners. All of that as a preamble to show the Bible's context to what Exodus 21 is all about. First of all then, my first point, I don't have any alliteration this morning, Maybe I was too tired this week, but I couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't find anything. So my first point is verses 1 to 6. That's, that's good, isn't it? My first point is verses 1 to 6. I didn't even make an attempt at alliteration. And verses 1 to 6 have to do with laws for male slaves. So, and we're entering into a different section of laws. The Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments, Establish the revealed moral will of God for his people at all times, in all places. This is a different kind of law. But it's still God's word. It is still God's word. It teaches us something about God's character and God's desires, but it's a different kind of law. 
And you notice it with the change in language. The Ten Commandments are called the Ten Commandments. They're not the Ten Suggestions. It's you shall, you shall not do this, do not do this. But now we have a different kind of case law. And every lawyer in the room pricks up their ears. But in verse 2, it's when you buy. Verse 7, when a man sells. Verse 12, whoever strikes. Verse 15, whoever strikes his father or mother. Verse 16, whoever steals. And in Exodus 22, it says, verse 1, if a man steals an ox. Something about sheep stealing right right there, you know, for all you farmers out there. Verse 5, if a man causes a field. Or 6, if a fire breaks out. So verse 21 is when, whoever, verse 20, chapter 22 is if. So the pattern now is not you shall, you, you shall not. It is when, if, whenever, whoever. So what I want you to see is that now the Mosaic law is given paradigm examples. It's giving paradigms and examples. You cannot have a law for every eventuality, so here are some examples. When something like this happens, this is what you ought to do. And we begin with laws about Hebrew slaves. You notice when you buy a Hebrew slave, he should serve six years, and in the seventh, he should go out free for nothing. So it's when you have a slave of your own people. There were different regulations if you bought a foreigner. Verse 8, he shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people. You could take foreign people in the Mosaic law as spoils of war. But this is referring to your fellow Hebrew slaves. Now, it's good to understand, like I said up, up front, about these range of relationships. Fellow he Hebrews could be sold into slavery by your parents. If you're a young person here this morning, just tell, tell your parents, please don't do that to me. But, you know, parents could sell their children into slavery. And it wasn't an act of cruelty. So just relax, just ask your dad and mum to buy you ice cream for lunch. But this is not a parent saying, first strike, ten minutes off the iPad, second strike, sold into slavery. That's not, that isn't what it is saying. This is, this is a way to provide something, sorry, even I laughed at my own jokes, that's terrible. But it's a way to provide something better in life. And maybe because the family was in absolute destitution. So you could be sold into slavery by your parents. It could also be an act of punishment. An act of punishment. Verse 2, if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so hard that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. Or it could be possible that you owed a fine. You could not pay. You were sold into slavery. So that makes another reason not to speed on the A66. You could end up being sold into slavery. But Leviticus 25 verse 39 also says, If your brother becomes poor besides you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. So slaves were largely domestic Agarian workers, and when you entered into slavery, it really wasn't that much different here than signing a six-year work contract. And sometimes I know your jobs do feel like slavery. And, uh, but you, know, you sign a six-year contract, that's kind of what it's saying here. 
And servants and slaves were counted as part of the family in the Old Testament. They were part of the family. In Genesis 17, at the establishment of the covenant of circumcision, he said, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And he goes on in verse 12 to say, Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So Ebed, slaves, were considered part of the family and they were considered part of the covenant community, which is why they were to be circumcised. So when in verse 2, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. The noteworthy, the first law, the first mention of slavery is not this is how you get slaves, this is how much you pay for slaves, no, this is how they go free. So the first mention is a regulation how they go free. It's almost like, not an exact comparison, but like military service, more than what our, we think of slavery. It's much more akin to that than slavery. You're in the stead of your master for a certain number of years. If you think about some stories we know from Genesis, we see this at play. Think of Jacob and Laban. We don't think of Jacob as a slave, Jacob as a slave, but he was. That was the position he was in. Because he wanted to marry Laban's daughter, Rachel, so in order to have to do that, he had to work seven years. And then what happened? He thinks he's getting Rachel, and he gets Leah. <laughs> and then Laban says, you need, you need to work another seven years for the girl of your dreams. But then Laban gives Rachel uh, up front, at the front end. But that's how you could receive your payment up front as a bride. You receive your payment after you did the work or before you did the work, usually after. So this is why the classic example of injustice in both the Old Testament and the New Testament is hiring someone to do the work for you, they do the work and then you do not pay them. So the, New, so the Old Testament and the New Testament is providing for that. That's why James talks about the fields that your workers mowed are crying out against you. And blood guilt is on your head because you brought them in, they laboured for you and you did not pay them. Jacob was a kind of slave in bondage to Laban for his wife. So verses 1 to 6 are the basic principles of when you buy a Hebrew slave. If he comes in single, he should go out single. If he comes in married, he goes out married. If he gets married as a slave, he cannot leave marriage, which is preventative. Because sometimes people would get married quickly and casually to get as many people out as possible. They get out in the seventh year, they see a guy getting out in a month, and you just got in two weeks ago. So you get married, you both get out, and you don't have to serve your time. You've been put into this position because your family sold you and you're a slave. So the stipulation is to protect against that kind of scheming. Secondly, you have to remember that almost all marriages were arranged anyways. Um, is it interesting? You might be listening, you might listen to this later, but my son says to me, he thinks arranged marriages is a good idea. But, um, but um, we have to remember then that almost all marriages were arranged anyway. I'm sorry. Um, it's not our Western notions of 
falling in love. And there is something for that, really, because we cannot allow our view of marriage to be formed by Hollywood. We need our view of marriage to be formed by God. So there's sacrifice, there's covenant. But it was parents arranging or some authority arranging for marriage anyways. And keep that in mind that once free, the man could redeem his family or he could wait for his family to get out or he could join his family back in slavery. You get hints of that in verse 8. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. So you had the opportunity to redeem, to buy back, to purchase. So the man who gets married as a slave, his wife and family that he has as a slave, do not automatically go free with him. They may have five years left, but if the man who is free, he has the ability to redeem them and purchase them out of slavery. All to say, this is so different to what we think of as slavery in our modern world. This is kind of a voluntary permanence, which is what you see at the end of verses 5 and 6. So normally in the seventh year, the slave goes free. And here's this option, and we'll come back to it later in the service. If the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go free. And then this master undergoes this strange ceremony with him. But he says, I don't want to leave my family. I, I love my master. This has not been cruel. This has been good. I have plenty. This is where I want to remain. And if that is the case, this is the ceremony. Now, it seems really strange to us. But the master brings him to God. And he brings him to the door or the doorpost. And the master bores his ear through with an awl. And he shall be his slave forever. But every aspect of that is important. First of all, the ceremony means he has to think it through. This is not a rash vow. This is not the slave just having a good day and saying, I want to be with you forever. No, he's thought this through. This was his freedom he's forfeiting. He's serving another master. He has an all put through his ear. He makes a vow before Almighty God. That probably meant he was brought before the elders. Or you bring him before the representatives of the covenant community. But the piercing of the ear says, I will listen to my master because it's the ear. I will listen. I'm ready to heed his word. And the door post was marked with the blood of the covenant between the master and the slave. So it hinges on the love of the servant for his master. You think about Ruth and Naomi. Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where I go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Or the disciples saying to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. It is a slave saying to his master, maybe I came here because I was made to be here. But now I'm here because I want to be here. Now I'm here because I want to be here. I don't think it's over-spiritualising this principle to say there needs to come a time when you say, no longer am I coming to church because people made me. You have a period in your life when maybe you feel like slaves having to come to church all the time. But hopefully, and what we pray for, is that there comes a point where it's, I don't have to show up, 
I want to show up. Because that's what the slave says to his master. I know it's my turn to go free, but I want to serve you and you have my allegiance and my obedience. Verses 7 to 11, second point. 7 to 11. The laws for a female slave, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. Male slaves were sold into slavery so they might work. The female slaves were sold to be a bride. They'd be bought as a man's wife. He might give the wife or the daughter to a son. The principle is that marriage has more permanence than servitude. And this is not parents selling their children to get rid of them, but giving their daughters so that they might improve their lot in life. The thing sounds terribly transactional to us, sounds foreign to us. We do not like any of it. I'm selling my daughter like a piece of property, but that's not how they would have understood it. Please don't think our thinking into theirs. They're saying, I do not know what life will provide for her. And this is an opportunity for her to be safe. And they get something in return. And there were three scenarios that resulted from a daughter being sold into slavery. One is that if the master did not want her, she could be redeemed. Or verse 9, he could designate her, make her for part of his family. Or verse 10, the master could take another wife for himself. The Mosaic law is constraining the practice of slavery by providing baseline benefits for the female slave. So even if he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, her marital rights, and verse 11. If he does not do these for her, she shall go out without payment for money. And thirdly, before we draw this to some conclusions and some application, just a few other texts so you may understand what the Bible views slavery, then we'll come to some application. Exodus 21, verse 16, whoever steals a man and sells him, anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. How do the Mosaic law view slavery? Keep this in mind. The transatlantic slave trade was forbidden by the Mosaic law. Slavery as we understand it was forbidden in the Mosaic law. Whoever steals a man and sells him shall be put to death. So the Mosaic law condemned the transatlantic slave trade. It was one thing if the family said, we have to sell you, or you say, I have to sell myself, or I'm punished for a crime. But it's another matter entirely if someone steals you and sells you, they should be put to death for that, if found in, or put to death if found in possession of such a person. Exodus 21, verse 26, when a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. The Bible treated, you know, actually addressed mistreatment of slaves. So far from thinking of slaves as some worthless, dehumanised piece of chattel, you can treat however you want. The Mosaic law says if you hurt them, they go free. Deuteronomy 15, verse 12, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. 
Like when they were set free from Egypt, the Israelites plundered the Egyptians. The Lord sent them out with their gold and silver. So when your slave leaves you, you need to give him some of your flock, some of your wine press. He shall not go empty-handed. Do you see these laws constrain the practice of slavery? It was a means of helping those who had reached rock bottom. They had an opportunity to get a second chance in life, be a slave for six years and in the seventh go free. Deuteronomy 23 verse 15, You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst, in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him, you shall not wrong him. If he escapes and runs away and goes to someone else, then you let him stay free. This is not a system of encouraging masters to make fortunes on the back of slaves. What do we find in the New Testament? One passage, and then I'll draw it to a close. You know the book Philemon? Paul wrote to a master about his slave. What we find in the New Testament is Paul, though not outlawing, though not donning the hat of a revolutionary to overthrow slavery, undermines it as a practice. Philemon 8, although though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Jesus Christ. He was a slave of Christ. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Paul led Onesimus to Christ. Onesimus was a slave of Philemon. Verse 11, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you. Send in my very heart. I'll be glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be of compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. Now listen, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. You see what Paul is saying? I came across Onesimus in prison. I led him to the Lord and now he's my brother. And Philemon, don't, he doesn't say Philemon, release him. He said, I want you to come to that conclusion yourself. He sows the seeds to undermine the practice of slavery which existed then in the ancient world. He undermines it as a literal practice and he underlines it as a spiritual reality. My friend, in Romans 6, we are slaves to sin. Without Christ, we are in slavery to sin. And we've been set free in the gospel from the shackles of sin. And now we are slaves to ever-increasing righteousness. That's the slavery that Christ sets us free from. He undermines literal slavery and he underlines spiritual slavery that we need to be redeemed from that we're set free from slavery to sin to be slaves to Christ. So my, my simple point in the whole of this sermon is that there's a transfer of allegiance. Who do you serve? There's a transfer of allegiance. 
The exodus from Egypt was not about freedom. The exodus was about a transfer of allegiance. The exodus was a transfer of allegiance. When, when Moses went into Pharaoh, he said, let my people go. And we stopped there. Let my people go. But what did he say? Let my people go that they may go into the wilderness and serve me. It wasn't just freedom. It was the transfer of allegiance. They had been serving Pharaoh, but they should be serving the living God. And we have been enslaved to sin, but we should be serving the living God. They were redeemed. They were repurposed. So freedom is a good thing, but it's not the ultimate thing. It's the transfer of allegiance. That's the whole story of Exodus. It's the transfer of allegiance. It's not that I'm just free to do whatever I want. It's that I'm free to worship the one I ought to worship, not Pharaoh. And that's why we came here today. We've been set free to worship the living God. Yahweh, the living God. He is our master. Romans 1 starts with Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of Christ. You see what it starts with? It uses the word doulos. Paul had transferred his allegiance. And before being the great apostle, he was doulos to Christo. He was a bondservant of Christ. It's one of the most lovely terms in the Bible, doulos to Christo, bondservant of Christ. He had a new master. He had been set free to serve the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He had a new master, the second Adam, the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. I close with a psalm, Psalm 40, verse 6. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you've given me an open ear. And in Hebrew it is, you have dug my ear. Burnt offering and sin, offering you have not required. And then I said, behold, I've come in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is written in my heart. It says, you've given me an open ear. In Hebrew, you've dug my ear. And Exodus 21 explains it, that after six years, if the slave wanted to stay with the master, he could be presented before God, and then all would be dug in his ear, which would signify, signify that you are my master, and I will serve you forever. And that is what the psalmist is saying, dear brothers and sisters. He's saying ultimately that God, it is not lambs and bulls and doves that you require. It is not those offerings. No, it's delighting in your will. It is the law within my heart. That is why the psalmist says, you have dug my ear. In other words, the psalmist sings, O oh God, I am yours, and I love you, my master, and I want to stay with you forever. And I give you, the only gift I can give you, my heart, as your servant, now and always, for his name's sake. Amen.